welcome to the Psychomedia Podcast. I am Timothy Swan. And I am Ben Fell, and this week we are going to be discussing the funny side of psychology. That's right. Uh, this week we are picking up on a theme that's run through a few of our previous episodes and talking about embodied cognition, um, which is a much less general so topic thing. than our last two episodes of time and hunger. <laughs> well, you know, it's good to mix things up with the... Uh, wildly broad and the unnecessarily nitpickingly specific but i mean it's a it's a theme which has popped up in a whole bunch of episodes prior to now with and often associated with the coolest studies in any given episode so um yeah we thought it was time it got a little bit of a a look in in itself and it turns out that it's quite a, a deep sort of philosophical statement rather than just a cool thing you can do with uh, with psychology experiments. Excellent. Well, it'll be interesting to discover that. But uh, first, let's have a little bit of feedback. And I say a little bit because we only have a little bit this week. Ever since we had that one episode where we just had too much to fit in and I was literally going through it at the top of my speed. Yep. Haven't had that much. He, Dr. Hugh Briss has come and given us in some sort of inoculation against... Okay, me. I really thought you were going to say enema for some reason. <laughs> no, it's fine. I'm, I'm not your enema, I'm your friend. Dimmer. Um <laughs> A friend dimmer would be a much better thing to call it. <laughs> yes, it would. Anyway. <laughs> I guess that's I guess that's when you do it, you know, privately in the in the in your own home. You're gonna than, say comfort, you know, but you can't associate comfort with that. <laughs> well maybe you if you like that sort of thing. Shall we talk about feedback? Yes, because it's better than talking about friend dimmers. <laughs> Okay then. Uh, yeah, a little bit of feedback uh, from Amanda this week. Um, sorry, what? What? Oh, Amanda. Right. Sorry, I thought that was a third. Never mind. Carry on. <sighs> Don't do friends jokes, okay? That's like my one rule in life. <laughs> That's why you really hated that. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, uh, there's a Twitter feed at the minute going around called Friends, um, which is like imaginary plots and series of episodes of friends but all like really deliberately badly misspelt as if the person who is like telling them has got like a mouthful of water or something it's really weird and yet strangely funny i will have to link it anyway from uh, amanda who was our one known brazilian listener but she has identified another brazilian listener that might account for some of these brazilian page views uh, and that was her mother um so psychomedia listeners if your mother isn't listening then you're not doing as well as amanda and you need to rectify that keep your mother in all night now you can listen to a podcast uh yeah um she commented this in in on the overthinking it comments because apparently you know our blog isn't good enough it's just like (laughs) Well, that makes sense. You'll probably get like more of a reaction if you post comments about this podcast in the comment section of the other <laughs> podcast. Apparently so. Well, yeah, there was a whole discussion on, you know, the interaction between language and number and what languages were easier to learn. And I was like, hmm, hmm, I think I might have something to contribute here. Um, <laughs> but she did say that she loved all the Portuguese, which I find unlikely. Did you know that you were good at Portuguese, <laughs> Ben? Apparently I suppose that's oh, well, technically not what she says, but she doesn't say, oh, I found your failed attempts at Portuguese funny. She says, loved all the Portuguese. So uh, not bad, Ben. Oh, I found all of your vain and painful attempts at language and indeed anything even tentatively disassociated with perfect English, utterly, utterly irritating. <laughs> uh, um, so, yeah, uh, that that is the feedback for this week. Uh, Short, concise, but sweet. Thank you, Amanda, and Amanda's mum. Yeah. Uh, So, this week, uh, Ben, what have you done this week? Well, you may have been able to tell, and I apologise, I'm slightly out of it this week, having been horribly, violently ill for the most part. Um, I've managed to have caught some sort of disgusting coffee type thing um i'm trying to remember the mute button but i apologize if any of the hacking bear noises managed to slip through the problem is it seems to be exacerbated by talking which means that a podcast is like the worst possible thing to do under the circumstances uh but never mind but yes i've spent most of the week making noises like 
a bear trying to cough up another smaller bear that is also coughing. Oh dear, that is sad. And this hasn't like led you to be like in bed watching movies or anything fun like that. No, no, because the problem is my computer is downstairs, so I, I get up from bed, wrap the duvet around myself, and sit downstairs wrapped in the duvet playing lots of video games. Okay. Well, you know, I guess that's the bright side. Yes. Uh, it was, in fact. Um, that would be a belated segue if we'd planned this properly. But anyway, what have you... Well, uh, this week... Um, uh, I missed a doctor's appointment uh, because I was so busy compiling a database of cars that were potentially able to be bought. Um, and that did. I, on the subject of your car search, by the way, I did particularly enjoy the picture that you posted uh, from these like um, auto trader ads ostensibly depicting a car that someone might wish to buy, <laughs> but which was largely obscured by quite a large dog. So much so that you could really only see sort of the back fifth of the car, a little bit at the front and some of the roof. But mainly what you could see was a dog, which is great if you want to buy a dog, (laughs) but not if you want to buy the car that's behind the dog. Auto trader. Now, Um, I looked through about 400, well, probably more than that, cars. And about 350 of them were dogs. There was was a lot of unintentional hilarity. Indeed, the one I actually ended up buying... uh, I believe is a dog. No, it's not a dog. Uh, <laughs> I think had uh, someone intended breaking news. Cars are dogs now. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, but you can't do that because language is orthogonal. Um, a child won't accept that. Anyway, you'll find out why later. Um, basically, so uh, yeah, in the advert included said uh, includes Bluetooth for hands-free driving. I was like, I don't think that's what you think it means. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I bought a, a new car. It is a uh, Renault Clio. It is about 10 years old uh, and it is red. Um, and so I'm really hoping that for next week's show, we can maybe do a show about red cars and uh, orcs, basically. Yep, that can t- that can definitely factor no, in. We can definitely fit some class a nerdery into that introduction I yeah suspect. yeah anyway the point being that yeah the car looks ridiculously like it oughtn't to belong to me because although it was for most of its life owned by either a a driving instructor or b a um, nice woman who didn't really drive it that much there was a year of its life in which it was owned by a russian boy racer uh, which means that it has hang on Pause that sentence. Is it a Russian boy racer or a Russian boy racer? I, I'm not sure that they end up being different. Or a Russian boy racer. Does he race boys? Does he race Russian boys? Is he a Russian boy who okay, races? A boy racer is like a concept that stands on its own, separate from the two words. I know, and then... I know. I was, doing, I was doing it for comedic effect, Tim. I come from Essex. I know what a boy <laughs> racer is. Oh... My mum, for example, is a boy um, racer. But by the way, did I? Uh, did I? We didn't actually talk about the lion at all, did we? We didn't talk about the lion. It was probably too busy being raced. <laughs> I, 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 I think chariot racing might like take off if we tried it in Essex. You know. Well, you know that we've got our own amphitheatre which had a chariot racing. Well, track this is on the it, thing so. that I, I was uh, s- said on Twitter that did not get any love, but should have done. Was that it's like uh, a lion in Essex. Uh, well, obviously Hannibal used, not Hannibal, sorry, the Romans used elephants to conquer Colchester. Clearly now Berlusconi is setting out with animals to finish the job. Well, I mean, maybe it's just a line that's been sort of chronologically preserved in one of the amphitheatres that are dotted around Colchester and has now just sort of emerged. Bewildered. That is really the only logical explanation for its existence because... Uh, Certainly no what, one's ever seen it, and that, you know, time travel would Well, no, it. in terms of possible sources of a lion, there are, as far as we can work out, there are only two possible sources of a lion in Essex. One is Culture to Zoo, and the other is the, a circus that was passing through. They called Culture to Zoo, and Culture to Zoo asked, have we lost your lion? And Culture to Zoo was like, uh, hang on, no, <laughs> no, we've got all our lions, it's pretty easy to be sure with lions. We've got, we've definitely got them. That, like, you, you absolutely sure you haven't lost lion? Because he's like, no, we're like we're zookeepers. We're pretty good at keeping track of lions. It's the name, really, um, isn't it? So they're like, right. Well, I guess it it must be the circus. They call the circus like, hello, have you lost your lion? And the circus is like, no, we haven't lost our lion because we have zero lions. 
it'd be quite difficult for us to have lost one. Yeah. Um, so clearly what happened was there was this tanning bed and they turned up the ultraviolet so high that it warped space time and enabled the gate that the Romans had built using the Aquila moon technology. Um, yeah. Only in, in, in the Colchester Amphitheatre. Okay, I'm just going to link maybe the Aquila theme song uh, in the show notes. Because <laughs> if you didn't watch Aquila as a child, which I imagine you didn't then, on account of having had a TV, I... it was a show about a Roman spaceship that spoke Latin and two kids who found it and was therefore the nerdiest show of all time. I remember time. hearing about this. It was by the writer this. of Bernard's Watch. Did you hear of Bernard's Watch? I, I've been told that okay. Bernard's Watch at length, possibly by you. Well, I, I preferred Aquila to Bernard's Watch because Latin, come on, who cares about time <laughs> stopping when there's Latin? Um, <laughs> it's like the least cool superpower ever. The classicists the world over will be pleased to rejoice that Latin is now a superpower. <laughs> well, yeah, but it's about as useful as like Aquaman talking to fish's superpowers. Yeah, it's actually less useful. <laughs> talking. Talking, uh, ability to communicate with a group of individuals for whom there is absolutely no reason for you to communicate. Yeah. And in that, yeah, for Aquaman, it's fish. For classicists, it's romance. Yeah. Anyway, um, the point about the, the car was, yeah, that it has huge speakers in the back shelf and racing rims and a 16-valve engine. <laughs> so I, I look so out of place in it. You are now officially a chap. Uh, basically, yeah. Um, but in order to fight that, I figured I had to name the car. Now, the car that I destroyed, uh, well, no, <laughs> Category C isn't destroyed. It's just wrecked beyond really any reasonable chance of repair, um, was uh, called the Millennium Falcon by my brother before he gave it to me. And he refused to let me change the name because um, <laughs> my, my first car was called Ahura the Mazda, which was like a joke on both Star Trek and uh, Zoroastrianism. I'm pretty sure I'm the only one who's ever made a joke that combines those two Venn diagrams. <laughs> Certainly who has then gone on to name their car. Well, yeah, I it. suppose you've had that third category to the like niching. Yes, that is a tiny, tiny, tiny Venn diagram. <laughs> yeah. um, but so I wanted it to clearly be named after another Carillion freighter or possibly. Well, obviously, I mean, for God's sake. <laughs> possibly a pseudonym for the Millennium Falcon and... The one that I'm really, really tending towards, although it is quite creepy, is the Princess of Blood. Because if you see the car, uh, it looks like it could be called the Princess of Blood. Ah, uh, no. Good name, bad name for your <laughs> car. Is it, is it? It makes it sound like it would have been used in a Tarantino movie. Um, yeah, because what were the other ones I was thinking of? Um, I mean, what colour is Chalcedon? Do you know? Because there's one called the Chalcedony. There's the Night Havoc. Uh, <laughs> that seems more appropriate for your driving style. <laughs> there was one. And also would provide a belated okay, segue called... into my media of the week, oh, really? actually. There's one called Gone to Pieces. And one called The Second Chance. Uh, the Regina Galas. I know, I know. I've got the perfect name for your car. What? Fredman. <laughs> no. It's not the right colour. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> Uh, uh, okay, uh, so uh, I, I, I'm go I've got I've got to run it past my brother since you know he's the one who named the original car. But I'm going to sell him on Princess yes. of Blood, which admittedly is named after a mutilated but not dead Princess Leia. Um, it's true. Expanded universe canon. <laughs> right, uh, before we go too far into just horror. Yeah. Um, because today was going to be a happy episode. Yeah. Uh, what? What should we move on to? Media of the week. Yeah, let's let's do it. So uh, you, what was it called? Night Havoc. Yeah, you have a name that you're not going to use called Night Havoc. And this week, I have been playing a game. Ah, yes. So um, I was going to talk this week about my media of the week, which is a game called of the, but. Unfortunately, uh, subsequent to recording that section, we suddenly remembered that it's NDA'd, so I'm not allowed to talk about it, because this is exactly the sort of thing that NDAs say I'm explicitly not allowed to do. With <laughs> yeah, talk, talking on a media podcast about a forthcoming game. The only thing that where I could make this worse was if I was recording myself playing it at the time and then putting the video online, which I may or may not also be. But, uh, <laughs> Yes, you were so, playing it that whole episode. You weren't looking at babies at all. Oh, wait, that's yeah. the future. How Time you know? messed up. Maybe there are babies in the game. Aren't. 
Who knows? I mean, if it's uh, the, like anything like the Game of Thrones game, then you probably have to dash those babies' heads against walls. I should just say, it's nothing like the Game of Thrones game. That's pure, like, conjecture. I was it just may... thinking of a game in which you'd kill babies, you know? Oh, okay. Yeah, no, yeah, that, yeah, maybe, maybe it is. Yeah. You know, Bran gets, well, he's not a baby, I suppose, but he does get, and doesn't die. So really, it's a rubbish example. <laughs> Spoiler warning, by the way. It's ruined everything. Um... But you say Bran doesn't die. I think saying anyone in Game of Thrones doesn't die is... Yeah, it should just... be followed by yet. Yet. <laughs> Bitch. Uh, <laughs> Smells so, so, fish. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> I think uh, that yeah. pass. I'm too, too lazy to edit that one. Yeah, fair enough. It's passed uh, in lexicon as being okay, I think. Yeah, and also uh, George Carlin says it's okay some of the time, so that's fine. I mean, Kanye is starting to consider his use of it, I think. And he tweeted, and I don't think it was like a modified tweet or like a parody account, something like, uh, someone said I should stop using bitch so much in my songs. At first I was offended that anyone could question me about anything. But then I started to think about things, and maybe it's a bit sexist. It's like, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, uh, that's not a parody. What? What? Yeah. Hmm. Oh, well. Uh, So so anyway. Figure of the week censored, but not for the reasons you would have expected. No. Uh, I mean, if you are desperate for a media of the week, I can provide you with the other thing, what I have been doing this week a lot, which is playing Guild Wars 2. Oh, well, uh, yeah, I suppose go ahead. Uh, which came out a while back and is Freud and awesome. It's wonderful. It's amazing. It's fantastic. I'm, of course, playing Norn because of my latent Viking genes um, and uh, running around hitting things with giant swords and generally having a whale of time. God damn it. That is a beautiful game. It is absolutely, it's got this, um, they, they haven't really gone for the sort of realism, but it's it's sort of this, they call it a painterly style. So it's kind of lots of art, like brush strokes and like clear brush markings. And the, it's all very stylized in terms of the color and stuff. And a lot of the areas that I'm sort of running around are kind of mountains and snow and frost and ice and things and because there's no flying or mounts or anything you get a real sense of the kind of this huge expansive world cool uh, and just like the the design on some of the locations is is stunning like one of the races the char who are this uh mi- militaristic race of kind of giant like bulky cat lion people with horns and four ears right um live in what is essentially a death star okay it's giant uh, it's this huge sort of industrial sphere with a big like i think it might be called the oculus or something like that it's kind of got a big eye thing in the middle um and yeah just that like the the design of the landscape in the the area is fantastic uh and the customer uh, character customization customer characterization the character customization is beautifully in-depth and fantastically fun uh yeah it's just uh it's a really stellar game the it's very very polished on launch and uh well worth a try plus it's an mmo and you don't pay a subscription fee you just yeah that's something Um, i approve of it's like 50 pounds or something i mean yeah it's just a standard one-off price um for the initial purchase it does have like a a, an in-game sort of microtransaction okay it does because i was wondering it's most free to play do but is it not as important because you paid an initial sync cost yeah totally and you know there's not it's purely cosmetic items and like experience boosters and um like various like uh booster type things but um, it doesn't render the game essentially unplayable not in the slightest good Um, because i've just picked up a free to play game the gotham city imposters Oh, right. And it looks like you can work your way up and it's just slower, Mm. which is kind of something I approve of. But I haven't played it for long enough to know whether it's just so internally slow that it's not really worth it without paying. Yeah. Uh, But yeah, no, uh, definitely give give your wars a try when it eventually, assumedly, comes out with a sort of two-week trial. Definitely worth a try. When is Um, The Old Republic going to go free to play? I want to finish it, but I don't have enough time to justify the cost. I mean, it is. Uh, I take it you knew that. When? Free to play by Christmas is what I've heard. But. Okay, but yeah, at some point it will. 
Um, as all do and that's when i when start it, playing them it's like it does. you know <laughs> uh, dc online and lord of the rings online not that i've played that yet but i will <laughs> it's just like... I, I think that the problem with um old republic is i i feel like i would play it when it went when it goes free to play except that it actually costs me too much at the moment in terms of disk drive space <laughs> yes it's huge oh and updating on my broadband oh, oh dear likewise sadly at the moment uh so anyway, yes, yeah, that was the media, media of the, the week. week. Okay, we will close the media, uh, this little little redacted section, as we began. Thus, excellent. Uh, anyway, shall I talk about my media of the week? Uh, why not? So uh, last night I watched the kind of semi-animated documentary American, the Bill Hicks story, um, which uses all sorts of photos and videos and audio from the past and then interviews with his family and contemporaries to tell the story of Bill Hicks' life. And it is a fascinating movie. If you know anything about Bill I mean, I knew, you know, the rough story of Bill Hicks and I'd seen his most famous shows um, because they were all up on YouTube and one of my friends were like, you know, oh, you think you're interested in comedy, then maybe you should actually see the guy who took it to this particular place. Um, and obviously there's some of his routines I find very funny. Some of them I find very challenging, you know, kind of personally um, to go and do something about it um, and the rest of it. And the film is a bit hagiographic. Like, I don't think anyone ever really says anything bad about him at all. Right. Um, and they don't, they kind of, you know, he dies. Spoiler warning. <laughs> uh, he dies. Um, if you didn't know, sorry. Um, but that's why he's not on TV. <laughs> You know, um, uh, th that's kind of it's very like there's a lot of build up to it. And then they don't actually kind of sh almost they don't even tell you really that it's happened. They just then start eulogizing him. But it is a really fascinating film about this interesting moment in comedy about how self-destruction and creation can go hand in hand um, about how challenging authority can be done through comedy and bringing a message about his whole message about love winning over fear if we fight for it which is obviously a really powerful message that i think pretty much anyone can get behind um hopefully apart from evil people marketers um <laughs> the wizards uh you know that uh yeah so i think it's a really interesting film it's really worth watching probably worth it you know seeing some of his comedy first although you do get a good selection of it it is a film you can laugh at even though it's the story of a short and you know drug-filled and cancer-ended career uh you do get a good bit of his comedy in there so i do really recommend it uh it was a bbc worldwide co-production so it'll probably be on bbc4 again pretty soon cool well there we go i guess that's the introduction pretty much done and dusted hooray Let's, right. let's do some psychology and uh, this week we're going to start with some history are you sitting comfortably are you sitting comfortably uh, not really this office chair is rubbish it's been doing in my back all week oh, sorry to hear that I'm oh. not really sure I can do anything. Like, if you want me to lie on my bed, but then my headphones won't reach, so I won't be able to hear you. I was still podcast. To lie on I'll bed, oh yeah, still got the soundboard. I'm just thinking back to you know when our beds were in much closer proximity than they are obviously now. <laughs> not sure either of us ever lay on the other's bed, as far as I can remember. Oh, Sat no. maybe as yeah. in a kind of impromptu sofa, as all students do. Yes, but I'm not sure I've ever lain on your bed. So there you go. Oh, well, something for the future. Anyway, <laughs> just the history of embodied cognition. Once upon a time, there was this bloke called Descartes. Uh, and he decided that the body and mind are two wholly separate entities. Um, in particular, he decided that the body is divisible. That is, you couldn't cut it into smaller bits. That kind of the, as, as complex as that concept comes. If you take a body, you can chop it up. By contrast, he thought the mind or the soul was indivisible and therefore must be a fundamentally separate entity from the body, kind of a unique thing all of its own. Yeah, we're starting quite early back at the sort of very early uh, dualist philosophy here, uh, but it's kind of important to sort of build up the, the history of a much later and much more modern concept of embodied cognition. So obviously... This idea that the mind is indivisible and therefore its own unique entity is partly a matter of 
the technology available. You know, Descartes didn't have access to the high-tech mind-chopping uh, devices that we take for granted today. I myself um, had my soul sliced into a thousand tiny pieces just the other day when I heard that Avril Lavigne was marrying Chad Kroger from Nickelback. Uh, if Chad Kroger from Nickelback had been around in 17th century, then maybe Descartes wouldn't have needed to invent dualism. And more importantly, we in the 21st century wouldn't have to listen to Nickelback. Uh, which I think would have been better for everyone, probably better than the uh, dualist movement has provided for us. Can I lose all my fans and say I prefer Nickelback to Avril Lavigne? I'm not sure. That's a statement with no win- possible win. Like, <laughs> people, people who hate Nickelback will hate you. People who hate Avril Lavigne will, uh, will be kind of ambivalent. And people who hate them both will also hate you. Um, that, that covers all possible types of people, doesn't it? Yeah, there's, there's, <laughs> there's not a fourth, a fourth box there. If you try and draw it, it's just like it disappears. Yeah. Uh, it just sort of melts into this grey mush of boringness and selloutness. Uh, anyway. Um, <laughs> I didn't say they were like their career in the present. I'm talking about a very specific 2004 sort of period. Oh, yeah, no, both of them. So before Avril Lavigne went pop. Both of them have like excellent albums which is what makes it all the sadder say excellent well i would <laughs> see see we're both making ourselves look like fools there, carry on talking no, about descartes nobody and likes nickelback and nobody likes avril lavigne some people liked nickelback and liked. oh yeah avril there we lavigne. go yes <laughs> it's all about time you've got to be very clear about time yeah, as we emphasized last week um anyway it's also worth pointing out um that the role that neuropsychology has in breaking down the barriers between the our understanding of the organ of the brain and this sort of dualist concept of the mind. Uh, neuropsychology is a term that specifically relates to the investigation of um, people with brain damage, basically. Um, and for this reason, you know, when you can point to a particular area of the brain and say with certainty that removing it or damaging it will for example, uh, obliterate a person's ability to appreciate the music of James Brown, there you have a clear indication of the link between the brain and the soul. I saw James Brown once. He was great. He was the godfather of soul. If that could bit of you could be cut out of your brain, that would be very sad indeed. It would be sad. Um, yeah, there we go. So that's a joke, but also a uh, serious point. Good, so, uh, good. I think we're getting the hang of this. <laughs> At what? Forty-three episodes in. Forty-four, I think. Oh dear. Anyway, uh, so yes, um, dualist concept of separating the mind and the body, and uh, so I mean that original kind of classic dualism isn't really part of the philosophical discourse these days, but there are elements of it that persist in various domains and such. Um, because uh, just saying that the mind and the brain are kind of the same thing, that there is a physical thing that provides our sense of mind, that's one thing, but it doesn't, that's not the same as embodied cognition. Embodied cognition is a much stronger assertion um, because its principle is that the nature of the mind is determined by the nature of the body, the whole body, not just the organ of the brain. Um, so the development of embodied cognition as a concept is largely thanks to a guy called Professor George Lakoff. Lakoff? Lakoff. I'm going to say Lakoff. Uh, he studied linguistics under Chomsky, uh, apparently. Um, and Chomsky always sounds like it ought to be the Russian version of Pac-Man, don't you think? <laughs> yes, I think so. Uh, In Soviet Russia, <laughs> ghosts... Both are chased and chase you. <laughs> but at different times to the way they are in the West. Why are we talking like this? This is no Russian accent. <laughs> uh, sorry. There we go, yes. Uh, Chom- so he studied, he studied under Chomsky. He studied under Chomsky. He helped develop a couple of theories relating to Chomsky and linguistics and all that kind of thing. Um, which, incidentally, contains elements that relate to the sort of dualist idea uh, dualist ideals like the fact that grammar is um, a kind of universal concept that our brains have learnt to access not that it derives internally from inside our brains that kind of thing we'll come to that later um yeah so anyway in the late 70s lakoff uh, started to become interested in metaphors 
Um, and he started to investigate these and kind of seek them out. Trying, he was basically collecting metaphors um, because they are a pervasive element of human language. They occur in, as far as we know, all languages. Um, and oh, Lakoff, really? That's I didn't know that. Well, uh, as far as we know, there may be sort of uh, weird anachronisms uh, in lost tribes that don't but yeah if we went and asked the piraha they're like yeah we can't count past three but we do know what a metaphor is we're not you know stupid (laughs) exactly i mean it it, anyway we'll we'll sort of go on to that um what he noticed was that um metaphors use consistent themes uh to convey a particular concept um and these themes are kind of derived from the physical world and they are found across languages and cultures i'll be giving a, a specific example of one of these later when I talk about the metaphor of fishy smells and suspicion. Um, this is a metaphor which has been identified in some form or another in at least 18 languages. Uh, wow. Which uh, is quite, you know, that's quite significant. And the general principle that Lakoff identified was that the same physical concrete concepts are generally used to express consistent sort of uh, abstract themes across languages and across cultures. Um, He provides a number of examples. So, for example, uh, the concept of being in control is always expressed in terms of being on top or high up. So on top of being on top of the situation, rising up the ranks, that kind of thing. Okay. Uh, Love is always expressed as a kind of physical force. Uh, so, like, sparks flew between them, they gravitate towards each other, that kind of thing. Anything that involves physics, basically. Yeah, yeah, basically. Physics is love. Who knew? Um, and all this time we thought it was chemistry. Uh, or the more cynical among us, biology. <laughs> uh, the really cynical maths. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and the even more cynical economics. <laughs> yes. Uh, right, carry on, because we can just keep doing it today. <laughs> it's funny, whatever subject you use. What do you call it when you go as an anthropologist and live among a tribe? I think it's I think it's uh, uh, basically engineering. It's a, well, it's a, in my a, case, fiction. It's a series of momentums and uh, moments. Uh, anyway, um, <laughs> <laughs> love is a series of moments. Uh, anyway, I uh, touching in another context, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. Um, anyway. But don't worry, we'll talk about sensory motor stuff later. Carry on. Uh, yeah. In the context of babies, Ben. Honestly, you've got to be careful with that music. <laughs> You'll wake up the babies. <laughs> um, honey, can you turn the porn music down? The baby's crying. Uh, yeah, so um, I, I tried to come up with some other examples of these, not given the article I was reading about it. Uh, one that I quite liked was the fact that anything relating to failure involves a physical kind of fumble or slip up. So you have things like spilling the beans, dropping the ball, letting the cat out after the horse has bolted, that kind of thing. It's just like, it's just more dyspraxophobia. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's racism, basically. Racism for your flaily jitterism. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Oh dear. Right, well, so this relates to something which I believe you're going to touch on later. Uh, The idea uh, of one possible explanation for this fact that our abstract metaphorical language seems to relate relate quite closely to our physical experiences. Uh, One of the explanations for this comes from the idea that we develop the majority of our language in the first few years of life. Long before we develop the kind of cognitive capacity to use abstract concepts like metaphor. So when we do eventually get around to the developing the cognitive architecture for metaphorical thinking, it kind of is forced to express itself using linguistic tools from an earlier stage of development. Uh, I think yep. that's, I think I've read that uh, particular aspect of it, right? If not, then it still makes sense. So there, uh, I think that kind of fits with what I'm going to say. So sure. It's internally consistent, even yeah. if not with reality. <laughs> with reality and the rest of the world. Yeah, that's fine. I think if we try and be consistent with reality, then we're going to be struggling, um, in life. Yeah. So, um, this, at last, brings us to embodied cognition. Uh, in 1999, Lakoff and uh, a guy called Johnson published a book called Philosophy in the Flesh, which sounds much more sexy than it actually is. Um, <laughs> yeah. 
philosophy in the flesh, the embodied mind and its challenge to Western thought. So, you know, nice understated title, not going to raise any alarm bells or put any hackles up there at all. Um, and the principle of the work is set in complete opposition to any kind of dualist idea of cognition. Um, according to embodied cognition, the brain is not just influenced by the body and its interactions with the physical world, but rather the two systems are fundamentally undifferentiable um, because our, our understanding of abstract concepts, you know, logic, reasoning, philosophy, because they all derive from our physical surroundings, there's no reason to separate them out. And this is a quite a sort of woolly concept to get your head around. Uh, but there is a classic illustration of kind of it in practice, and it's called the outfielder problem. Um, and it's basically putting forward the question of how a person can run and successfully catch a baseball that's following a curved trajectory. However, because we are British, goddammit, we will use an adapted version of the outfielder problem, which I shall call the square leg problem. <laughs> so... Is that an equivalent position to an outfielder? I, there will be a link in the show notes to a picture describing the criti cricketing positions, and you will notice that it is roughly consistent. Hooray! Uh, or at least consistent in terms of what I... I wanted one with a suitably silly name, so I found yes. one that kind of met all the necessary criteria, and square leg seems to do the trick. Um, yep. Anyway, picture the scene. Uh, you are a world-class English cricketer, against all the odds, playing... Well, you know, if they keep on acting like Kevin Peterson, <laughs> there won't be any left. Slash, if we keep on just using South Africans, then in terms of real English, I might become that guy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, you are a world-class English cricketer playing the final test of the Ashes at Lords. By some freak anachronism of the current score, which I'm not Andy Zaltzman enough to accurately invent, uh, it all comes down to this final ball if that does happen in 2020 at least oh well there we go uh that is how the ashes is played no okay <laughs> it's a test match that's all going to be decided I okay know. this is really unlikely but <laughs> yes you know not impossible if the Aus if the aussie in the crease can score but a single run they will win the tournament however if the english can get one more wicket they will win I, yep. I, I guess it's conceivably possible, but, you know, not that into cricket. I'm into cricket. I'm not that. I mean, at this point, it would have to be a tie situation. Mm. So is it possible that the, the, the Australian has to score two runs? Why not? Maybe he has to. It may, yeah, sure. That doesn't mess up the metaphor, does it? No, not at all. He, okay. he could have Good. to hit the boundary. It doesn't. Uh, or actually, no, that one might mess it up. It depends if you're allowed to catch someone out once the ball is over the boundary line, but hasn't touched the ground yet, which I don't know. If you hit it back in... Because I saw this, right? If you hit it back in, because a guy, it was in the IPL, dived over the line, hit it back in, because if it touch, if he touches the line while the ball's connected to his hand, that's the boundary. It's a six. Right. But he hit it back in, fell on the rope, and someone else caught it, so it was still in the air. And so he kind of did basketball on a cricket ball Volleyball, in order to catch right. someone out when it was going for six. Okay. Brilliant. So, yeah, that it does make the metaphor more difficult if he has to hit a boundary. Let's let's say he just has to get one run. But anyway. Okay. Um. Two, two is possible if it's going that far. Anyway, so, the, uh, yeah, the batsman sends the ball high, slightly off to your left, is travelling far, but you can reach it, so you start running. As you run, your brain is attempting to intersect your vector of motion with that of the ball at the point where it will be roughly, you know, somewhere between one and six feet off the ground. That's okay. quite a complicated series of kind of geometric calculations and trigonometry and all that kind of stuff and there are two possible ways for your brain to resolve this difficult situation your little grey cells as Poirot would say um, the first is the one that's kind of proposed by the sort of dualist approach where uh, sort of physical laws and um, gravity and that kind of thing are kind of external concepts which our brain interprets and then kind of provides internal models for your brain kind of knows about vectors and velocities and parabolas and stuff maybe not explicitly or maybe explicitly from all those physics lessons you took at school um so as you're feverishly running towards the ball your brain is calculating and computing the trajectory of the ball based on the perceptual input of your eyes and also comparing that with your own motion via these proprioceptive inputs and 
with this method, it doesn't actually matter where you run what run. I'm sorry, turning into Jonathan Ross there. Um, I'll be making abusive phone calls in no time. Uh, <laughs> oh, I could be Russell Brand. I have the hair for it. I think you are. Yes, in this particular <laughs> setup, you are definitely Russell Brand. Um, sorry, I'm, I apologise for that. That was uncalled for. Um, yeah. So with this kind of um, calculating, uh, sort of thought out uh, method, uh, which has a name that I'm just looking for. The, um, yeah, anyway, never mind. It sounds like rationalism to yeah, me. Yeah, basically. Um, with this method, it doesn't matter where you run while the ball is in the air. You could, you know, run in little circles. You could break out a blistering breakdancing routine. As long as you arrive in the same position as the ball does at the right moment, it doesn't matter what you do in the meantime. You can do anything. However, I'm not sure that makes logical sense, but carry on. Well, uh, w- okay, so those are extreme examples, but up to a point, you know, you if you can still get there, you can complete. Then, yeah, once your brain so. has the like the uh, velocity, the acceleration, the direction of the ball, you don't even you don't need necessarily even to look at the ball while it's flying. You have all the information you require. You can just run to the point and then sit and wait until the ball lands in the right position. Yeah, okay. There is another way, however. If you are, for example, if, for example, the ball is hit directly over your head or directly towards you in a straight line, all you have to do is run in such a way as to make the accelerating ball appear to move at a constant motion. It turns out that if you do this, watching the ball, it will appear to accelerate, but if you run in such a way as it seems to move at a constant speed, if you do this, you and the ball will arrive in the same spot, whatever the other conditions. That's just kind of how physics works. Yeah. If you're not in a direct line with the ball, it'll appear to follow a curved path. All you have to do is run in such a way as to make the curved path seem linear to you as you're running. And once again, you will just end up where it ends up. It's the kind of the way it works kind of magic um and it turns out that as in this way as the embodied cognition literature would suggest the way your brain processes things like motion and velocity is kind of fundamentally derived from physical reality there's no need to kind of extract the equations from the system and then reapply them in this kind of immediate situation you can just kind of follow a trick that makes it that will work yeah um so these are your two options, and certainly in terms of processing power, the second one requires far less and presumably can work much faster. Um, and furthermore, it turns out that when you present actual human beings with this outfielder or square leg problem, people do run in the way that the embodied account would predict. They, they run in such a way as, from their perspective, to make the ball appear to be travelling at a constant speed in a straight line, whatever its trajectory Interestingly, dogs do the same. Huh. Now, dogs can't do physics. This has been proven by physics. Well, maybe by zoology or something. Even Pavlov's dog couldn't do uh, psychology, or maybe he could. We don't know. Um, but yeah, dogs, It was all a very long game. <laughs> yeah, dogs can't do physics. But their brains do develop in the same physical world as ours. So it makes sense that our cognitive systems of motion processing and theirs would be pretty similar. Uh, because they have to deal with the same kind of physical reality, which kind of lends further credence to this idea of embodied cognition that your kind of the way your brain works is intrinsically and kind of uh, fundamentally tied up in how your body works and how your body interacts with your surroundings. Yeah. And what it turns out also is that this can cause cool things to happen in terms of psychology, which I suspect you will now provide an example of. Uh, yes. OK. Um, so I basically, when we were coming up with some articles for this, when Ben said there was one about gender, um, I, I, I kind of jumped on it. Um, so, yeah, the, I mean, the key to embodied cognition being cool is clearly symbols, um, although, um, well, no, not although, these symbols are emergent from physicality. So the most obvious example that's from the article I'm going to tell you about is interpersonal warmth. We call a person warm 
when we don't mean their temperature, we mean kind of socially, but that probably emerges from them being warm when we hug them, something like that. Um, or possibly one example of that in terms of the sort of developmental, how we develop abstract thinking and concrete language is that, you know, your experiences of personal um, attachment and attraction as a young baby will have been characterized by physical warmth because it's when you're being yeah, hugged. Yeah, I mean, I don't know this personally because I only ever hug cadavers. Anyway, um, uh, in a also, very... No, it's a platonic hug. I platonically hug a, cadavers. You're a platonic necrophiliac. <laughs> a necrophrendiac. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, so basically... Well, we are we are coming up with a lot of unpleasant. Yeah, this is like for for what I thought was going to be one of our most optimistic episodes. Just a lot of horror <laughs> going on here. Anyway, um, so yeah, this is an article by Slepian, Weissbuch, Ambardi, and Nicholas O'Rule, a man whose name was really made for a graffiti artist. You can kind of picture the Nicholas <laughs> O'Rule rules. Um, That's a good bunch of names right there. Good mark. We should have like a, a scoring system. Yeah. I think right now we should instigate a scoring system between uh, out of ten, okay. and we can each each give a mark for the uh, for the names, and we can see who the winner will uh, be. Maybe actually, no. Maybe we shouldn't do it now. Maybe we should come up with a series of criteria. Yeah, yeah. Do it scientifically. Do some pretesting, you know, that sort of thing. Impact, pun potential, exoticism, like difficult of badassery. Hang on, I'm going to write. Okay, these well down. you can do that, and I'll actually talk about psychology. Um, They start the article by expressing the key thing about embodied cognition. All of the parts of our brain work together and interact. And I feel that in a neuroscientific psychology, we talk about neuropsychology, it can be easy to forget that. We talk about emotional circuits, perceptual circuits, language circuits, even circuits of consciousness. But what embodied cognition shows us, as well as kind of promoting a sort of biological naturalist approach to the problem of the mind is that they all feed into one another. And so they start with a great example of embodied cognition. Representations of grapes versus representation of hammers can be summoned, they can be primed, by um, precision grips, like plucking, versus power grips, you know, grasping onto the handle of a hammer. I find that incredible. Also the idea that you think, right, hammers, grapes, those are two things that are different. I do. And what the, these uh, authors wanted to show was that the social categorization was also effective in embodied cognition. And basically, they wanted to continue to broaden the umbrella of things that are affected by embodied cognition beyond performance, which is one of the things we discussed previously, and into judgment. So they uh, throw out another few examples, and I love each of them. One, getting participants to determine the importance of an issue when holding a heavy or a light clipboard. So a heavy clipboard, they judge it more important. Uh, time perception is affected by directional movement, purity and cleanliness we talked about before, and as I've started with, interpersonal and physical warmth. I'll just tell you a little bit more about the time one, Miles et al., before I move on to the real gender stuff, uh, because I always want to stall before talking about gender. Basically, they hooked people up to what was, in essence, a wee balance board, blindfolded them, and asked them to think about themselves either four years in the past or four years in the future, thinking about the future they leaned or moved forward and thinking about the past they leaned or moved back it was amazing and in fact i just thought about myself in 50 years time and i headbutted my monitor didn't because we did uh, another one of the studies that we've done in the past on embodied condition was about uh, leaning to the left or right and changing uh, size and number estimations so it's what actually turns out when you play when you sing um the song when i was one i sucked my thumb the day i went to see the chorus line of which involves you traveling mentally forwards and backwards in time and readjusting your estimation of size excellent perfect i, go I don't know that song you'll have to link you don't know no. that song never heard of it when i was one i sucked my thumb the day i went to sea i dumped aboard a pirate ship and the captain said to me we're going this way that way forwards and backwards over the O.C." A bottle of rum to warm my tongue, and now my body condition is ruined. <laughs> no, no, I don't know it. You don't know that? You okay. didn't have a TV yes, as a yes. child. You can't that... criticise me for not having one cultural reference. <laughs> yes, I can, because it's that cultural reference and you should have it. Uh, is this weird, listeners? It is weird that he doesn't know this song, right? 
I, I think that the listeners are going to back me up on this. Right. Well, a video of it is going That's in the show fine, because then I can learn the song. Anyway, what can we use perceptually to symbolise gender? Uh, we know that the way... <laughs> We know that the way people move <laughs> Just move can on. easily cue gender, but that's more physical than symbolic, really. Uh, Slepian et al. tell us that slow movement cues oldness, and that's getting a bit w- more towards the abstract. To do gender, they picked toughness versus tenderness. And this is a physical feeling that is, for good or ill, symbolic for gender. And whatever you think about that, it's better than the pilot study where they used joke prostheses. Um, now, when I say it's a physical feeling, <laughs> Slepion suggests that it's proprioceptive. And if you haven't watched QI, you ought to know about the hipster senses, the other power rangers, if you will. So you've got the original five. There's the Black Ranger hearing. That's because the original Black Ranger, or as Wikipedia calls him, the African-American Ranger, uh, uses hip-hop kido, a cross between hip-hop dance and aikido. Uh, yellow smell and pink taste. These two are connected because they're girls or something. Uh, red vision, because red's the boss and vision is the boss. And blue touch, there's not really a justification for this one. Uh, just a warning that it's really important not to confuse Billy Cranston, the Blue Ranger, with Brian Cranston, the Meth Ranger. Uh, then you've got <laughs> the evil one, the Green Ranger. That's Pain, obviously. Uh, white. But who can also be good sometimes. And also Pain is the most badass and Green is objective. Well, I was going to say White, Temperature, which is basically Pain in Disguise in the way that White is the Green come back to good and disguise gold proprioception often forgotten but always important and silver vestibular often forgotten and rarely important <laughs> i don't know anything about the gold or silver ranges i barely you would say that vestibular is rarely important <laughs> i think like, if you that have vision, you don't everything. need vestibular really you do need it a little bit anyway so that was a rabbit hole the point is that slepian says that toughness and tenderness is in fact proprioceptive um which i probably should explain is body position because when you press your arm into something tough the arm doesn't move very far and when and you sense that via proprioception more than touch which is more about the kind of texture and stuff and the movements it's making for tender it obviously sinks in kind of a long way and you can tell the difference or um that's in terms of something receptive obviously if you're doing it yourself the reverse is true for tough you're kind of really pushing in a lot of force a lot of movement and for um tender you're not moving very much it seems ridiculous but i'll give them a chance and besides you guys just let me run with a frankly sexist and ill thought through power rangers metaphor the least i can do is respect some researchers tim all power rangers metaphors are sexist and ill. well yes i suppose that's true (laughs) anyway to quote from the study 70 college students 41 percent male 59 percent female probably a psychology class continuously squeezed a hard or soft ball between subjects while categorizing eight faces as male or female Wait, on, no, on, no, no, no. The two balls... They, they, continuously, they didn't continuously squeeze this hard ball between subjects. They continuously okay. squeezed a hard a, ball. A hard... And it was a between-subjects yeah. design. Okay. You make it sound like a group yeah. activity. Okay, the two balls were similar in all respects except density. Now, I don't want to go too immature and go all Zoltzalswick on this one, but there is a certain amount of gender priming going on in those sentences that I really think is a confound. Couldn't they... <laughs> Oh dear! I was going to say, couldn't instead of balls, they could have had nice, like neutral feminine symbols. But they're like, you know, the thing is that like a feminine equivalent would be, as we previously discussed, melons, which are also. Well, yeah. Balls. I mean, as, as I pointed out to someone on my Lake are... District holiday, the problem with Freudian symbolism is that everything, by definition, is either phallic or yonic. Because if it's a cute angle, then it's phallic. And if it's an obtuse angle, then it's yonic. And so there's just no way, unless it's a flat line, that's it. <laughs> that is all you are allowed in a neutral society. Sm- things and must flat all horizontal be flat lines, line. because a flat vertical line could still be phallic. So there yep. you go. Um, they then. That's why the vestibular system is important. <laughs> yeah, okay, fine. For that reason and that reason only. They then generated sex ambiguous faces. Well, probably they did this in advance because it's not really the sort of thing you want to be doing on the fly. That's how you end up with someone who looks like me. Um, and they had to categorize these faces that were made up to be 50% of the statistically derived prototypical features of men and women. So they had some program that had like the stereotype of a man and the stereotype of the woman, and you could generate a whole range of faces that edited the features so they were all 50%. I'll quote again. As expected, a two-by-two two, uh, design of ball type versus participant's gender, uh, ANOVA revealed that faces were categorised as males more often by participants squeezing the hard ball, 48%, 
than by those squeezing the softball, 35%. There was no gender interaction, and so basically feeling something tougher shifted the perceptions of the category towards the male. I'll quote again. Uh, in study two, we sought to provide converging evidence for the influence of tough tender proprioceptive feedback on gender categorization. Participants categorized the same faces as in study one, but with a different manipulation. 48 college students were given two sheets of paper that were stapled together, separated by carbon paper. They were asked to categorise each face by using a pen to circle male or female on this answer sheet. And the eight faces were presented on an individual sheet of paper. Critically, participants were either told to press hard with the pen because they were making two copies via the carbon paper, or to press gently because we wanted to reuse the carbon paper later. And as expected, a 2 by 2 ANOVA revealed that faces were categorised as males more often by participants who were pressing hard on the paper, that's 67%, than by those who were pressing gently, 52%. And there was no significant interaction with gender. So once again, toughness versus tenderness, again, influenced gender categorization. Got to, got to try a little gender categorization. <laughs> now, there's no control here, so I don't think we know for sure that tenderness is working as a manipulation rather than just toughness, though it may be that they lie on more of a continuum than I would say. But I think it is possible to sort of be tender and tough in a way. If you just imagine Sylvester Stallone giving you a hug. Um, and that's, that's a really bad example. That's like unequivocal. <laughs> what are you talking about? Me. Haven't you seen him crying over Adrian being dead in Rocky Four? I don't know if that's no. happened because I haven't seen any Rocky films. I saw The Expendables recently. I was, he's, he's like a, 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 like a tough yet cuddly. Like... Uh, yeah, like, I mean, I, I feel like Dwayne Johnson is quite Okay, what, what about Jason Statham just stroking, like, your hair? Yeah, but... That's he, homoerotic, isn't he's, it? Yeah, Jason Statham isn't cuddly. He's kind of, yeah, oily. <laughs> you mean covered in engine oil because he's been wrestling a man in oil, not as in a yes. slimy character, a fish character, one yeah. might say. See, that's where, like, consistent metaphors well, break yes, down. Well, yes, I suppose so. Yeah, because is it an oily fish or a kind of white fish? Anyway, I'll get, we'll get to that later. Um, I would be absolutely fascinated to see this research applied to ethnicity or sexuality, although you'd think that the testing methods would obviously have to be changed, because obviously mixed ethnicity is quite different to androgyny. You can't just kind of categorise, or you shouldn't anyway. And you can't go through a set of faces asking people whether they're gay or straight. I mean, not unless you're the author of this study, Ambardi, who literally, if you search for gay facial structure... <laughs> The top Google result um, is by yeah. Ambardi, who also did this gender study, an article which showed that people have an above chance ability to detect male sexuality from facial structure. They haven't figured out what these features are, but they do know that it's possible from a 50 millisecond presentation. And even when shown one feature, like an eye or a mouth, and any potential like muscle wear taken out, because some people said, oh, well, gay people have different facial expressions that they pull more often that affects like the muscle wear. Even if you exclude all of that, people can still tell above chance gay or straight. And if you use wow. pictures tagged by other people on Facebook rather than ones on their own dating profiles, so they're not trying to attract men or women at that time, except for the general way in which we're always trying to attract those who we're attracted to. Incredible. Insane. So well done, Ambardi. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't know how you'd tie that into embodied cognition, whether the tough or tenderness would affect a gay straight rating or whether there's different metaphors that fit with that. Um, Go ahead and do it. Why yeah, so not? bonus credit to Ambardi. Um, the reason they were interested in gender is because of essentialization. The essentialization is that a group has deep, hidden, and unchanging properties, uh, which is certainly a good euphemism. Gender is the most essentialized category, apparently. And obviously, that is an issue when it comes to heterosocial relationships and transgender stuff. At the very least, it might go towards explaining at what times people are likely to mistake me for a woman, despite me wearing full Bradley Wiggins sideburns. So... <laughs> Their final point, and I'll make that mine as well, the strength of pressure one exerts on a surface during activities ranging from pressing on an automobile accelerator to typing on a keyboard to exercising can influence what one sees in other people. And this suggests that multiple modes of sensory experience guide how people perceive and think about one another in the social world. And this explains why everyone drives so angrily, maybe. Anyway, cool study. Possibly they just drive angrily around. Well, <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's a cool study. Plenty of places to go. I'd love to see some stuff on masculinity and gender identity rather than kind of categorization and perception. But, uh, yeah, that's that would be the cool. end of that. Okay, 
So it turns out that balls are squishy. Uh, yeah, uh, but some are squishier than others. And the, the less squishy the ball, the more female it is. Um, and if it's involved with cricket, then it maybe annoys Descartes. Yeah, well, I think, you know, cricket ball, obviously, is like the ultra-masculine masculine ball. Man ball. Compared to, uh, I mean, I suppose a baseball ball is not softer. Turns out that cricket and baseball are like, well, actually, no. Uh, well, are there any things that use wooden balls? I feel like there are. Uh, hmm. I can't think of anything. Certainly nothing in the modern day. I mean, balls the cr- uses metal balls. I played balls That's true. Yesterday. Bowling is probably the manliest <laughs> sport then. <laughs> it certainly contains um, the most amount of man per participant, as it were. <laughs> is, that, is that? No, sorry. I forgot about darts. Darts are a very phallic object. That is true. Arguably not as much as baseball bats, but, you know. I mean, that's an argument that Freudians can have and we can laugh at. Yes. <laughs> Twas ever that. Uh, so, uh, yes, yeah. the story is to be continued next episode, everyone. Um, so, well, okay, so shall we appeal to our listeners to send us some feedback, please? Yes. Please, please, please. There's so many different ways you can please do it. Please, God. One, go to the show notes at psychomedia.wordpress.com. I know there are listeners who have not seen all of the cool images and videos that are there, and you should. There's, there's pictures of Christina Hendricks. That's really all you need to know. Oh, right, yeah. There's a, there's a secret button. You can choose the good path and the uh, less good path, <laughs> depending on your point of view. Yeah. Uh, the, the, you, we can see whether you value your women of, for their brains or their bodies. The, the blue pill of neuroscience and the red pill of Christina Hendricks, yes. So, yeah, go and look at that. Um, <laughs> And other things. The, the show notes last week were pretty good. Um, and this week they shall also be, because they should be filled with adorable pictures of babies in costumes. Yeah, you're previewing again. <laughs> no, it's going to be wonderful. Um, they might have... Uh, what will they have? They'll have pictures of cricket-feeling positions. There we go. Uh, yeah, a video yeah. of Aquila, uh, um, some cricket amazing catch, maybe a weak Photoshop of me and Ben as uh, Ross and Brand. Uh, yeah. that dog from Auto Trader if you like dogs yeah that would be yeah please put that dog on there because he's wonderful uh, links to our respective uh, media of the week uh, so you can buy War of the Roses and maybe play with Ben please buy me it if you're like insane mm. uh, so yeah uh, go and look at that uh, join us on Twitter yes uh, uh, I'm at Tetrarchangel and you can message me the, you know the podcast officially is uh, at Team Psychomedia so come Badge us on that. You can also email us at uh, psychomediapodcast at gmail.com. I guess you could try adding that address to Google Plus and seeing what happened if you were really desperate. Well, I was thinking we might try badgering Google Plus for some stuff at some point, but uh, that's a whole other issue. Yeah. Well, if you can leverage Plus, then you're a better man than I am. Um, write a review on iTunes. Uh, I may not see it for infinite time because Apple is stupid, but I will eventually and I'll appreciate it. Or just click a star rating. Yeah. So that, you know, imagine it's a Likert scale. <laughs> <laughs> There's a midpoint, so you can successfully go either side. Indeed. Um, I think that's everything. Yeah. Oh, there's a Facebook fan page uh, um, we, on which I'm posting some ra- any random stuff that occurs. Yeah, actually, the Facebook the one is probably a good one to follow because, uh, yeah, you have been throwing some like random Like bonus sh- images stuff and there. stuff. Mm. Uh, if I realise that there was something I left out of the show notes or spot something in prep that isn't necessarily going to make it into the show. Mm. Uh, so this week it was chronesthesia. Which is cool. Yeah. Um, so yeah, do all of that. And uh, we'll, uh... we'll see you next time. Yep. Bye bye. It all starts on a hot July afternoon with the closing game of the 2013 Ashes series. As the final ball comes away from the Australian batsman, England's star square leg runs to make the catch that will win the game. As the ball descends, the crowd holds its breath. Suddenly, there is a commotion in the stands. At the last minute, a duelist philosopher in the crowd releases an excitable Labrador onto the pitch, who leaps through the air and catches the ball in his mouth. The resulting brawl proves to be the final straw. Amongst accusations of incitement to epistemological violence, the game of cricket is banned for calling into question the entire basis of Western philosophy. The ICC moves underground and begins organising illegal nighttime test series at secret locations around the world. In a cynical attempt to distract attention from its many other failings, the British government cracks down hard and declares cricket a Class A drug. 
on the 12th of December 2013, Mr. A. Zaltzman is admitted to the Betty Ford Clinic. In response, the Test Match Special Team quit the BBC and set up a pirate radio station on a renovated North Sea trawler, sustaining themselves on cake donations from their listeners. As the global economic and political systems continue their steady decline, the cricket bat becomes a symbol of resistance to increasingly authoritarian governments worldwide. Violence erupts in the streets, with protesters dressed in white hurling cricket balls at government buildings and attacking riot police with bats. Eventually, the governments of the world are overthrown, and a new order of nations arises based upon cricketing prowess. Australia, Britain, South Africa, India, and Pakistan form the new superpowers. In the years that follow, people look back on America and wonder what all the fuss was about. The stumps become a symbol of unity for the world, and soon after, humanity evolves into a higher state of being and collective achieves collective enlightenment. Strawberries and cream are served for all eternity. <laughs>